during peak COVID, I would visit Australia and I'd be quarantined. I'd be locked into a hotel room for 14 weeks. Quarantine means 40 days, but luckily 14, not 40, before I could go on and see my family down in Canberra. Now, lots of people went through that. Lots of people found it hard, but I actually enjoyed it. I, I didn't call it quarantine. I called it my writing retreat. And, you know, I mostly just potted around. I actually felt like I was in some version of a John Donne poem, you know, an entire universe in this single moment, in this single room. Now, the very first hotel that I got quarantined into, I looked out over Darling Harbour in Sydney. I had this big picture window, and I looked across the bay, the, the harbour itself, and then into and kind of slightly up the hill towards the central business district. Over to my left, I could just see a little bit of the um, Harbour Bridge. I knew just over the rise was the Sydney Opera House. It was my only view for two days, of two weeks, and, you know, I came to love it. It changed constantly. It was on fire, lit up by a sunset. It was looming with threat as a storm passed by. It became lit up at night. There was actually a Ferris wheel, a carnival, like an underworld at my feet. We're constantly searching for what's new. We're constantly distracted. And sometimes it's wonderful to be forced to look and look again and look again at what's right there in front of you. Welcome to Two Pages with MBS, the podcast where brilliant people read the best two pages from a favorite book, a book that has moved them, a book that has shaped them. Miranda Keeling trained as an artist initially with a degree in glassmaking, but has gone on to grace the big stage and to attack the tyranny of the blank page. I am an actor and a writer. That's the way I always have said it, but I'm starting now to say I realize I'm a writer and an actor. That swap in words might seem like an insignificant difference if you're not really paying attention, if you aren't really noticing. But those small differences are kind of Miranda's thing, noticing the details of everyday life and elevating them with the various forms of art that she makes. And to be honest, this is something Miranda's done from the very start. I have been fascinated by telling stories since I was, I think, about four years old. Um, so everything I do is in some way about telling a story. Do you remember the first story you ever wrote? Hmm. Yes. <laughs> now, I was six and my mum had a one of those old-fashioned, I say old-fashioned, it was normal then, <laughs> right. type, typewriter that had, <laughs> so you know. A typewriter then. It's not old-fashioned at all. It just was a typewriter <laughs> when you were six. <laughs> but it was like a real one with, you yeah, know, the yeah. keys, you know, made that noise and everything. Um, and I painstakingly typed out this story about my best friend and some kind of peril that we were in. It, had, it was nice. quite dramatic. It was really short. It was about two paragraphs. Yeah. Um, and yeah, that was really interesting. I think that's the first time I sat down and actually, with my mum's help, you know, crafted a little tiny story. Yeah. I, I'm, 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 I'm getting flashed. I think the first story I ever wrote, I probably would have been a little older, like seven or eight. Yeah. It was, it was some version I think I just read about Sir Francis Drake and oh, wow. kind of in a very kind of, you know, like a children's ladybird book around Elizabeth 
first and Francis Drake, and it was something to do with boats and pirates and being heroic. I was the hero, unsurprisingly. Yes. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> What's the dance between being an actor and being a writer? I think it's a really close and relevant dance between the two. And in fact, sometimes when I watch TV, really good TV now, I'll be unsurprised to find out that the writer or director has an acting background because there's something right. about noticing and being present that is in acting as a uh, a thread that runs through it. You can't you can't do it well without that presence. Yeah. How is the physicality of being an actor? How does that influence the way you're a writer? Wow, that's an interesting question. I think, so physicality is really important. And even when you're doing radio, it's really yeah. important. Bizarrely, you'll find directors will say to you, can you put a smile into that line? <laughs> yeah, totally. Because we can hear it. Um, and so I guess realize specifically what I do is observing things and observing yes. people. Um, and so I'm often looking for tells because I don't know them and I see them for a couple of seconds. I'm looking for the thing that when I look at them tells me who they are and what they're feeling as much as I can. So it might right. be the way they're walking or something about the way they're holding themselves or the pace that they're moving at. All of those things are um, a kind of character and yeah, so I think the physicality of being an actor involves stepping into somebody else's shoes and working out how to do that physically and, and then emotionally, right? right. Um, and I think as a writer, I'm really fascinated by what makes people tick and what their unique experiences are. So that's the relationship. Yeah, that's really interesting. You know, when you introduced yourself, you said, I, I'm, a, I'm an actor and a writer. And then you're like, oh, but maybe I'm now a writer and an actor. Um, what does it mean to move from, what does it mean? What does that shift in language, that shift in perhaps identity of different weightings? What's that been like? I love acting and it's part of my soul in a way I can't describe to you. It's mm. um, doing it is incomparable to anything else. Right. It's astonishing. And there's a back and forth that you get as an actor between yourself and whoever is in sort of, taking in what you're doing and there's an energy back and forth that's absolutely amazing but it is a really tough industry you know yeah. and there is a real sense of being a hamster in a hamster wheel sometimes because you can get somewhere great and then you it doesn't there isn't a natural route where you just think oh right. I'm, fo I'm following this route not not for most of us it's a it's a graft yeah um and I haven't stopped grafting and I still want to do it and and all of that. But in the pandemic, um, when I was approached by a publisher to make a book out of what I've been writing, after that, it just felt like things started to flow towards yeah. me in a way that, yeah, I mean, I've had phases of that as an actor, but this feels kind of different. Mm. You know, an, an approach about a book and then the book, it, you know, does well. And then I'm approached about a podcast and now talking about a second book. And it feels very fluid and very like a path I'm following, like the yellow brick road, <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the reason I've swapped it over is just to kind of rest 
in the part of my creative self that is flowing at the moment. Beautiful. Does that make sense? It does. It's like uh, you're, you're actually being swept along by what being a writer does. So why not kind of give it due prominence because that's where the, the energy comes from at the moment. Yeah. I'm curious because I'm, you know, I've written some books, so I'm a, definitely an author. Yeah, you've written lots I'm, of books. <laughs> I oh have. Um, but I'm also trying on the identity of being a writer. And um, so this question stems from just my, my own exp exploration of this, which is to ask you, um, what do you have to let go of to fully embrace the identity of being a writer? Um, I suppose I have to accept that it's a, it's potentially a solo, a solitary place. Right. And so I let go of that. Okay. Th this is almost true what I'm about to say, and then I'm going to bring in a, <laughs> a but, um, yeah. you know, I have to let go of, or I thought I had to let go of that feeling that you get when you're putting a play together and you're working with a team of people and you're part of this thing that's much bigger than you. You're still right. part of something that's bigger than you, but it's a, it's more like you and whatever you believe in, God or the universe or whatever it is, the, yeah. the flow, right? But it's just you and the flow. There aren't all these right. other kind of people with you. But that depends on what you're doing. And certainly, for example, with the podcast and even with the book, there are other creative people that I'm working with and they are pitching in and telling me what works and what doesn't. So it's not as solitary as it might be. If I was maybe a novelist, which I'm not at this, at this point, then I probably would hold myself right. up in my, is that where you're, you're going into fiction? I'm, no, I'm not. I'm just, um, uh, so for me, I'm, I, I have books that I've written, but I have a bunch of other things that I do. I give speeches. Yeah. I've, design training I run meetings I you know I do a whole bunch of stuff yeah and so up until now writing has been something I've done along the edges of the other stuff obligations I've had of building a small business and I'm trying to shift putting writing more at the heart of what I'm claiming as an identity great and um and I'm just trying to figure out what I need to say no to kind of like what aspects of my old self do I now need to say if I'm saying yes to being a writer I need to say no to some of it's kind of doing stuff like giving as many speeches as I've given in the past some of it is more mm -hmm. of a being stuff which is like feeling I need to be in the hustle of being a you know making business work for it's sure. just kind of what I'm trying to figure out yeah for sure it's so interesting actually yeah I feel I feel em embracing the solitariness and embracing the incredible courage that it takes to, to try and be a writer. Um, it does take courage because you're not, it's not like other jobs. You're not swept along by somebody else's agenda in the same way. You've got to set your own agenda. You've got to go into wherever yeah. you work and start and look at that blank page. And <laughs> it's, it's a very different way of, of being. Yeah. Um, but it sounds like you feel similar to me in that you just feel like that is what you are and you're trying to um, step into it. Yeah. You know, it's, feel, it is I, what you are, but then. Yeah, I feel some of that energy flow, but I also feel it's my best contribution to the world. Like of all the things I can do, writing feels like most distinctly me and most distinctly helpful. Mm. Um, so how do I try and do more of that? 
I feel like as well, we have these unique, in theory, and, and I, ho- I would hope we have these kind of unique voices, really. And that's perhaps why this experience is flowing for me more than the acting. Because, yeah. I mean, I, I could call myself unique as an actor, but there are loads of people who look like me and sound like me and are my age. <laughs> and, you know, yeah. Uh, whereas your, your writing voice is, is yours, isn't it? And it's... It's interesting. Yeah. It's, I think with all the AI and all the the panics we have about Somebody said to me the other day, oh, I want to put into one of these AI programs, write a Miranda Keeling style observation. And I got this really strange feeling. <laughs> I, I said, oh, I don't want to do that. I don't want to know what, what it would come up with. Right. How, how do you describe your voice? Um, so it has been described to me as um, clean and economical and slightly magical. And of those three words, yeah. the descriptions, which one brings you most joy? Magical. <laughs> <laughs> so what yeah. does slightly magical mean to you? Um, I think I think it means that it's out of the ordinary, that it's um, a window onto something that's a bit sideways. Mm. Out of the ordinary is perfect as a phrase. Because mm-hmm. your observation is of the ordinary, but it takes it out of the ordinary. Yeah. And sometimes in a very subtle way, um, and sometimes in an overt way. Speaking out of the ordinary, what yeah. book have you chosen to read for us today? <laughs> I was just thinking it's so so relevant, isn't it? So this is a this is a book written by Charlotte Zolotow. It's called Mr. Rabbit and the Lovely Present just trying to open the front now and check when it was written yeah 1962 and it's illustrated by the wonderful Morris Sendak who is a legend who is a legend (laughs) um and it's it's an unusual little story but it's his illustrations I think that make it so Mm -hmm. so um uh out of the ordinary and elevated yeah, but the cover is just so um, so strange. You would pick it up in a bookshop and think, "What is this? <laughs> is this appropriate for? Who is this appropriate for?" Exactly. When, when did this book come into your life? My mum read it to me when I was a child. Yeah, yeah, a lot because I like I asked for it all the time. So it's the same copy that I've had since, you know, a thousand years ago. Yeah. <laughs> Mr. Rabbit, said the little girl, I want help. Help, little girl? I'll give you help if I can, said Mr. Rabbit. Mr. Rabbit, said the little girl, it's about my mother. Your mother, said Mr. Rabbit. It's her birthday, said the little girl. Well, happy birthday to her then, said Mr. Rabbit. What are you giving her? Well, that's just it, said the little girl. That's why I want help. I have nothing to give her. Nothing to give your mother on her birthday, said Mr. Rabbit. Little girl, you really do want help. I would like to give her something that she likes, said the little girl. Something that she likes is a good present, said Mr. Rabbit. But what, said the little girl. Yes, what, said Mr. Rabbit. She likes red, said the little girl. Red, said Mr. Rabbit. Well, you can't give her red. Something red, maybe, said the little girl. Oh, something red, said Mr. Rabbit. What is red, said the little girl. Well, said Mr. Rabbit, there's red underwear. No, said the little girl. 
I can't give her that. There are red roofs, said Mr. Rabbit. No, we have a roof, said the little girl. I don't want to give her that. There are red birds, said Mr. Rabbit. Red cardinals. No, said the little girl. She likes birds in trees. There are red fire engines, said Mr. Rabbit. No, said the little girl. She doesn't like fire engines. Well, said Mr. Rabbit. There are apples. Good, said the little girl. That's good. She likes apples. But I need something else. And then it continues like that. So yeah. she doesn't know what else. She's, you know, she likes blue. They find some grapes. She likes yellow. They find, you know. And eventually she ends up with this basket of fruit um, for her mum. And then I'll just read you the last bit, actually, because it's so, so strange. She took her basket and she filled it with the green pears and the yellow bananas and the red apples and the blue grapes. It made a lovely present. Thank you for your help, Mr. Rabbit, said the little girl. Not at all, said Mr. Rabbit. Very glad to help. Goodbye now, said the little girl. Goodbye, said Mr. Rabbit. And a happy birthday and a happy basket of fruit to your mother. And it's it's Sendak's drawings that make this so strange and spooky and beautiful because I don't know how you imagine it when you hear it, but I guess I could have easily imagined a sweet little bunny rabbit kind of figure. Yeah. And he's drawn this very strange, tall, man-sized rabbit who stands on two feet. Yeah. And in the final drawing, when she's saying goodbye, she's standing on the porch of this house that feels like it's in middle America and it's nighttime and outside the porch, they're just kind of mountains and fields and stars going into the distance and this shadowy rabbit man on two legs is waving over his shoulder and walking off into the night it is so strange (laughs) (laughs) and so beautiful so what is it about this book that is so compelling for me I'm, i'm thinking about it actually looking at these images and for me it's it's exactly what we've just been talking about. It's about elevating the ordinary. It's about how um, the simple things that you might not notice are the things that could could be the most important. So she feels like she doesn't have any gifts for her mom, and yet she's in this place of na- full of nature and you know apples on trees, and and he is able to help her understand that what she's looking at, the simple things are. Mm are enough, are more than enough as a present for her mum. And her mum will be delighted with this fruit basket. Of course she will, yeah. because the girl's taken the time to go and gather all of these things and to think about them. Um, and it's also about lateral thinking too in that way. So, you know, each time he comes up with these silly suggestions, roofs and underwear and stuff stuff like that, um, and eventually they realise what the distillation of of these things is oh it's the color well what's you know what's the simplest thing that's this color of yellow well it's a banana um so yeah i it's funny the resonance with my own work that it has and when i chose the book i hadn't really made those connections yeah how have you learned to notice um i've always done it I've always noticed. I think I was a very imaginative child and my brother was too. And we lived in our imaginations together a lot. Um, And that sounds 
like a sideways thing to say because imagination isn't isn't noticing in a sense but it is in the way that this book does too because you you look at what you have which is like a cardboard box or a little space behind an open door you look at it really carefully until you can see a rocket ship going to the moon or you know a cave on mars because you've arrived there (laughs) um and so I, I think I've just always done it. And my mum also was a big noticer of things. Yeah. Um, I think the world is really fascinating and I feel incredibly grateful to have the the senses that I have um, to notice things with. Yes. One of the things that I noticed from the, the, the reading and your description of the illustrations is the, uh, you know, you can imagine just hearing you read that, that this is drawn in bright colors, white background, Mm. kind of, uh, kind of childish figures. And in fact, it's kind of a a more twilight experience. And I'm, I'm just wondering how, that twilight or that kind of that hint of something else shows up in your own work and your own observations? I think it shows up a lot. I think sometimes I find frustrating. Um, occasion- a lot of people understand what I'm trying to do and it resonates with them. But occasionally I'll get, I'll get somebody saying to me, I read your, your book and it was, yeah, it was really sweet. And there's something about me that goes, oh, you know, right. I think that that people underestimate small things in life don't they and my work is incredibly small it's very very short um and tidy and so so it might appear surfacey or sweet if you were to look at it quickly but a a lot a lot of what i'm observing has a great sadness in it or a strangeness or just a boredom um (laughs) which doesn't sound compelling but it is for me i think that fabric of humanity is essentially essentially what I'm trying to capture, not just a one particular way of looking at things. And I had, well, I think we talked about this before that uh, we have both in our backgrounds living in different countries and traveling and trying to work out where we're from. And I was moved so much as a kid and I don't know where I'm from. I feel relatively comfortably from London now Yeah, because you can do that when you live here. It's great. (laughs) Yeah. And I didn't always have the easiest time being a small person. So, um, yeah, I think I learned quite quickly to just focus in on what was helpful or what was interesting. Um, yeah. You said noticing sadness, but you also said noticing boredom. What is it about <laughs> boredom? Yeah, I found it really interesting on in old days Twitter when Twitter was an, a, a fun old days nice place. place. Yeah. yeah, and there were lots of accounts like... There were lots of accounts, it felt like, that capitalized on how fascinating we find boring things. So I remember there'd be an account who would just post pictures of, um, I can't even remember, boring paint colors or something. But these accounts were compelling to me. I remember thinking, I quite like the (laughs) comfort of this. And the person who, who just photographed bollards, everyday bollards, (laughs) I think it was called. Um, And yeah, I think the I think the boredom aspect interests me in lots of different ways. Um, 
I like observing people who are bored. I find that interesting. The things that they do yeah. when they're bored to try and distract themselves or, um, you know, when they're waiting and train stations and all that kind of thing. But, um, yeah, boredom is really interesting. My four-year-old has just started to feel, to conceive of boredom. Right. Before that, her whole life was this and then this and then that. And then, you know, and now she's starting to go, I'm bored. <laughs> and I've read that that's really positive, bizarrely, right. that we need to feel bored. Right. Because it forces you then to go, I now need to invent a cave on Mars. Yes. And as a writer, I mean, you must know the, the you must know that, I think, that if we allow all of the distractions, the really attractive distractions to take us away, we're not going to write anything. We have to have that emptiness of kind of, okay, I've sat down to do this. The page is there. <laughs> right. The tyranny of the blank page. Yeah. <laughs> and I have to, have to wait, be patient enough for something to show up. Right. Where do you, there's a, a curiosity I have around the tempo at which you move. Huh. You know, how, how would you how would you name that? And yeah, how would you how would you talk about the tempo? The tempo in which I move uh, creatively, or you mean literally physically? Not, I'm not sure, Miranda. You know, there's there's something about observation requires typically slowing down For and sure. being still enough to to see it. But I also didn't want to be reductive enough to say it's just about slowing down. It feels like tapping or choosing a different rhythm or pattern or tempo in terms of how you interact with life. And I'm just curious to know how you think about that or whether it's just something that's integrated in terms of how you move through the world. Mm, I do think about it quite a lot. And I, I, I have a really complex relationship to this. So, you know, sometimes I'm, if you were to have a cup of coffee with me in a, in a cafe, you might find me actually quite rapid and distracted because although we're having a conversation I'm trying to notice <laughs> all of these things and I'm also trying to make a note that they've happened so I'll often be talking and I'm saying sorry I've just got it that was so funny I'm gonna write it <laughs> right. down um but the other thing that happens and particularly for the book that I'm working on at the moment that involves a lot of me going to a place even just a tube platform opening yeah. my notebook sitting letting the trains go while I just notice what happens there's a meditation technique i did years ago and i sometimes do still where you know you imagine that your mind is a theater a blank theater and the curtains are open and you just wait to see what comes onto the stage mm. you try not to follow it or get too emotionally entangled but you notice the players move across the stage that are your thoughts yeah. right and um that's what happens with a lot of my longer form writing is that i yeah. Um, I just wait because if you're really still, then eventually the pigeon comes over to say hello to you and <laughs> I don't right. know, something happens. Um, but if you rush through it all too much, you're going to miss everything. Yeah. That's interesting. We've just um, adopted two cats that <gasps> previously had been feral. Wow. And um, they've had a, they've had time to be de-feralized, if that's a word. I like it. But they're... Um, they're extremely skittish and nervous. Um, we've had them for five days, so we're right at oh. the very start of this. And, you know, my wife and I just have to be very still and just sit there and, and wait for them to get curious enough and feel safe enough to come out and come over and say hello. Um, and it's a very interesting, patient 
experience. Oh, well done doing that. Yeah, I fostered four cats who had various different issues. And um, one of them just wouldn't come out from behind the washing machine for about three days. And um, yeah, you start to think, but yeah, every time I tried to pull the washing, I mean, not three days, obviously, not that long, but it felt like that. Every time I moved the washing machine to try and get him out, he just was just panicky. And in the end, I had to do what you're saying, which is just wait really quietly. Yeah. Um, he's he's yeah he ended up doing well in the end but oh good luck with that how exciting i love yeah, did you know they, are they kittens or cats um it's a mother and her son oh. so the son is um just beyond the kind of very kittenish stage and the mother yeah. is a year older than that roughly oh yeah amazing you know when i notice you and read your observations sometimes it's a, a moment but quite often you're observing a, a brief exchange of conversation between two people. Yeah. What what do you, what's at the heart of those observations that you capture? What what attracts you about that that, that those sweet Back moments? And forth. Yeah. The amazing thing about it when it works is that it's a tiny little play. Yeah. And within this brief conversation, you know who the characters are what their relationships are to each other, what they want, um, what they're not getting. And it's all in this tiny, trying to give you an example from my memory because my copies of my book are all in the kitchen and I'm out in the garden studio. Uh, Shed. Um, What's that one man on the train? I'm tired. His wife. Oh, we're all tired, Brian. (laughs) And it's such a tiny exchange, but you just... Yeah. I had this lovely thing of all the responses to it were either identifying with Brian or with his wife, quite specifically, um, because they could just, they would, oh God, you know, I'm tired too, or blimey, my husband always says this kind of thing. Um, Right. Yeah. Little gems. How, I mean, you had some wonderful success with the year I stopped to notice. Mm. Um, And... Um, and as you said right at the start of the conversation, you know, the, the that's created a, a flow now yeah. of opportunities and conversations and a new book. Um, has that changed the, your nature of your observations? It's something that people ask me quite often, and and it's something I think about myself. I hope not. Yeah. The only positive change that I think is there, and I've been kind of encouraged to make it is that there's more of myself in them than there was. I have little observations of parenting or how I'm feeling. And um, in the podcast, I find (laughs) because in the podcast, I'm not in the writing, I'm editing and it's edited to heck before you guys see it. Right. And in the podcast, it just comes out of my head. I'm just talking to myself. It's quite strange. And, and, therefore I end up saying oh you know that reminds me of when I was at school and this thing happened and blah 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 so that's definitely a change if you look at my stuff right at the beginning I was nowhere to be seen I was just yeah um a vehicle and now I've brought myself in a bit more interesting but there's a there's a risk there and I want to be really careful I don't want somebody to come and have a cup of coffee with me and think am I going to end up is this conversation going to end up Am I going yeah. to be in her play? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, you talked about being a, a, a writer and an actor. 
But you've mm. also had a background in um, working with glass. I indeed. So how does that past experience bleed forward into who you are now and how you show up to the world? Well, specifically, the sculptures that I ended up specializing in were very, very small. Each one would fit in the palm of my hand. Um, I also did a lot of using, I'm just, this is just me thinking about it because I, I always give the answer that my pieces are small and that's true. But also, I also ended up using entirely recycled materials and not mm. at a point when the environmental impact of that was a big deal. Just be, right. But just because um, in the hot shop, I mean, the environmental impact is a big deal, but we weren't so aware of it. In the hot shop, the glass blowers would, um, there'd be lots of debris left over from their work. And I would yeah. take that glass debris from the floor and use it in my pieces. And then I would also set some of my pieces in recycled um, car parts that I would right. find in junkyards or even in building sites that I'd ask builders to go and have a look around. Yeah, Bits of metal, that sort of stuff. And I would make lighting out of it. And my point being that... That's again me taking something pretty ordinary. It's a piece of junk. Mm -hmm. It's literally going to be end up in landfill, um, and I'm trying to to get the best I can out of it and yeah. and and elevate it into something else. This is a very random question. <laughs> Probably like all of my questions so far, actually. No, now not I think at all. About in it. fact, um, but I'm curious to know if you read poetry, and if you do, are there poets that you know and love? I do read poetry. I should read more poetry because I think it's We all um, should. <laughs> I think wonderful. it's like a moral obligation. We should read more poetry. Wonderful. Yeah. yeah. Um when I was at school, my favorite poet was Roger McGough. And mm. I used to be able to recite his poem The driver of the lethal lorry trembled out and cried, I'm sorry, but it was his own fault. Um humans snuggled round the mess in masochistic tenderness as raindrops danced within his womb. Um, the, something like the twisted metal, broken cane, um, his chair spread-eagled in the rain, the fallen bird man. And I don't know, that's not recited properly. It's from my memory of a thousand years ago, no. but what he did that was so beautiful and devastating was he yeah it was it's beautiful and it's devastating it's basically about a man in right. a wheelchair who's hit by a lorry and he's and and it's about and when he says the raindrops danced within his womb we know that he's he's you know terribly wounded by this accident but the way that he describes it is so beautiful yeah. it's almost it's hard to describe how it makes me feel. It's so <laughs> moving. It makes me feel a bit sort of nauseous, but also yeah. awestruck. And I, I, I rarely does prose make me have that particular feeling. And then I love um, people like Ian McMillan from, you know, who does the verb on Radio 3, right. who's, who's just got this lovely sort of soft, observational, kind of funny, dry way of looking at things. Um, but I, I wish I could tell you that I read lots of poetry and that, and certainly that I could remember the names of all the poets that I read. Cause I can't. Yeah. Yeah. I can't either, but I love yeah. that you mostly recited the poem for us. <laughs> <laughs> it was fantastic. It captured exactly what we wanted to hear or know about that. Cause it yeah. also, you know, 
beautiful and devastating is a little bit like what the experience I get when I read some of your stuff as well. Oh, wow. Um, you know, it's that same kind of there's, there's that twilightness that we talked about earlier, that dimensionality to it, which is like it's capturing a moment and capturing the, the echoes of something beyond that in your observations. Thank you. I mean, even an observation that I love, which is just of a pigeon who has found as if it's a treasure trove, a packet of spilled watsits, but he can't, he's trying to eat the watsits. You know what watsits are? Those orangey, yeah. big orange crisp things. But because of his the shape of his beak and the shape of the watsit and the bounciness of it on the pavement, he can't, he can't <laughs> manage right. to get one of these things and he's sort of chasing it around the pavement. And that's, incredibly sad right yeah if you see it that way and also hilarious exactly it's like hilarious and that kind of deep existential futility all at the same time and their (laughs) whatsits exactly Miranda it's been such a lovely conversation I'm I'm wondering what needs to be said that hasn't yet been said to complete Mm. it it's funny, I want to say thank you for your questioning style because it's you give your speakers, I mean, I don't know if you always do, but certainly with me, um, a lot of space to think, which is perfect for me because I always need a bit of time to unravel what's in my head and, and get it right until I'm, until I'm happy with it. What else needs to be said? Um, wish me luck for my longer form writing because it makes me nervous to step out of my comfort zone. <laughs> Good <laughs> that, luck. That's what's coming next. It'll be so much more than a pigeon chasing a watsit around a pavement. I'm sure of it. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. You remember I asked Miranda about her voice and she said it's clean and it's economical and it's slightly magical. I mean, how delightful, how delightful those three descriptions are, particularly combined, and how delightful that she doubled down on magical. But really, I thought what was magical, what was delightful, was that Miranda knew how to describe her voice. You know, when I was writing this, I'm like, okay, so how would I describe my voice? And I'd say, this is my best guess for now, today, enthusiastic and metaphorical and playful. But honestly, I'm not sure. I do know that I started writing newsletters, gosh, in university, let me see, that must have been close to 40 years ago now. So I have written many, 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 many words, newsletters and books and scripts like this one that I'm typing now. And that's how I've come to get close to what my voice is or find it, you know, enthusiastic, metaphorical and playful. You find your voice by exercising it, by finding a space where you might have something to say and finding a way to say it. You know, last night I went to the Law Review in Canberra. It's a a variety show put on by law students. I was in that show 30 years ago. I famously or infamously did a a skit called Synchronized Nude Male Modeling. And honestly, it wasn't very good. (laughs) And I had so much compassion for those 20-year-olds because they were all starting to write and starting to find their voice. And I could see that that's what was happening wasn't very good because they were just at the beginning of finding a way to be good. You have to be bad before you get good. I mean, my brother Gus, he specializes in selling vintage clothing. I mean, I know, how cool. 
and he has a really distinct way of writing about his items that always makes me smile. In fact, even as we speak, I am rocking an amazing blue-brown plaid 1970s suit, big lapels, flares, and I bought it from him unseen because of how he wrote about it. So I'm curious. If you only had three words to describe your voice, what would those three words be? And of course, you know, you can think what I mean by voice. It might be the written word. It might be the spoken word. It might be, you know, like my friend, uh, how she describes her work through ceramics, which is her, her work and her artwork. You know, we all have different formats in which we play. What's your voice in that format? And perhaps, you know, behind that is a bigger question, which is, do you even want to have a voice? Do you want to have a distinct way of talking about and engaging the world? And if you do, where do you practice? Where do you find and practice your voice? Two possible interviews for you to follow up on. Uh, McKinley Valentine, how you get good at something. You can see the connection right away. She's really interesting. She pursues extreme things. She's done a lot around physical stuff, being a, a fighter, an MMT fighter, being a bodybuilder. She's often pursuing extremes of physicality as a way of learning about herself. And then Neil Heidi, who I went to high school with and has gone on to be a professional musician, teaches in the London School of Music, which is fancy. And my conversation with Neil was how to practice. If you want more of Miranda, you'll find her on most of the social medias at Miranda Keeling. That's just her name. Um, her podcast is Stopping to Notice, and the book is called The Year I Stopped to Notice. I like stopping, and I like noticing. I think that's a good combination there. Thank you for listening. Thanks for loving this. Thanks for reviewing it, blurbing it, writing, writing nice notes to me, um, passing it on through word of mouth. However it is that you appreciate this, and if it's just by listening to it, then I appreciate you. I think you're awesome, and I think you're doing great. <laughs>